0: our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com.
3: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor.
4: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, Uh, and my partners, uh, Roger Wiegand uh, and Chen Lin, also publish newsletters. Uh, Roger's uh, is Trader Tracks and Chen Lin's. Excellent newsletter is called, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? want to thank each of you. Uh, well, I should mention that you can subscribe to e- each of these letters uh, separately. Uh, go to our website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call Claudio Bossi in New York at 718-457-1426 uh, to sign up for those letters uh... I'd like to say the best website to go to to track everything that i do including gaining access to this radio show the live show as well as the uh... as well as the archived issues that go all the way back to march of two thousand nine uh... the best place to go to is J taylor media that's jay taylor media dot com want to thank each of you for listening to this show again making this the number one show on the voice america business channel i want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable for the first hour of today's show, they are Merrick's Gold, Visible Gold Mines, Lucky Strike Resources, American Manganese, Rye Patch Gold Corp., and Romeo's Gold Resources. Today, our main guest is Ian McAvity, who used uh, used to be a, a fairly regular guest on the PBS uh, Louis Rukeyser show, Wall Street Week. Uh, Ian is a former Wall Street analyst and chartist, and he is one of the best in the business. He will have some very important observations about... The current debt and equity markets, as well as the precious metals markets. And uh, I can say uh, this that Ian uh, is very bearish on the equity markets, very bullish on the gold markets. So you're going to want to hear what he has to say to learn why Uh, he thinks so, uh, thinks in those terms. I have said that. We are in the bull market of a lifetime for gold mining stocks. The shares have not performed very well. Certainly this year they have not performed well at all. But I remain highly confident that they will do so as long as the earnings continue to soar for the major mining companies. I think most people on Wall Street, most investors, uh, do not understand gold. And they think that gold is really just another commodity, that it's in a bubble and that the earnings are strong now, but they won't be into the future. In my view, nothing could be further from the truth because, as history shows, when major credit deleveraging periods take place, uh, especially with a senior currency as is happening now, uh, that gives rise to increasing earnings and increasing uh, increase in the real price of gold for a long period of time. Bob Hoy's work suggests that this uh, rise in the real price of gold lasts from 15 to 20 years, and looking at the real price of gold's rise well it really only started in about 2007 or 2008 so by that criteria i believe we have at least 10 years to go yet in the bull market i'm talking about the real price of gold not necessarily the nominal price but when an ounce of gold will buy more and more uh commodities and thereby as a result increase the profit margins for major uh for mining companies in general <clears throat> well i think that we are, in fact, in the granddaddy of all deleveraging events, and we'll be talking to Ian McAvity, no doubt about that, to get his a sense of the perspective of this credit deleveraging uh, episode that Bob Hoy compares uh, with the most recent one being the 1930s. Uh, meantime, uh, as our main guest, uh, Ian McAvity, told me earlier today, he is more bearish than ever on the equity markets and more bullish uh, than he's been on the gold markets, and again, we'll get his ideas as to why he feels that way. Uh, if Ian is right, and I personally think he is, then there will be few places to go in the equity markets except gold shares, and that is when I think you will see the gold shares surge to extremely high levels. First, it will be the senior gold companies. They haven't really moved very much yet, but their earnings are skyrocketing. But as those companies need to replace reserves, they will have to go downstream, down to the smaller companies, the kinds of companies that are, uh, that are sponsors to this show. Uh, today, uh, in fact, I plan to comment on four sponsors to this show that, uh, in the last segment of today's show, excuse me, I'll be talking to you, including one, RX Gold, which has risen 54% today just today, that is, on takeover um, on a takeover agreement. And I'll also be talking to you about Legend Gold, Rye Patch Gold, and Romeo's Gold as well. And that, as I say, will be in the final segment at about 4.45 Eastern time. In just a few minutes, I will be talking to Kathy Fong. She is the president and CEO of Lucky Strike Resources, another of our sponsors. This is a company that is exploring and developing a coal mining deposit Uh, a coal deposit in Mongolia, and Kathy has had quite a successful track record uh, in the past uh, with SilverCorp in China. She is a very talented and energetic CEO who will have some very interesting things to tell us in just a few minutes from now. In the second hour of today's show, I will be talking with Dr. Richard Sutcliffe. He is the president and CEO of Auriga Corp, and this is a company with an advanced stage gold mining project in Manitoba uh, that looks very interesting. Uh, it's a high-grade uh, uh, starter pit, open pit, and then underground mine in Manitoba. Uh, but before we talk to anyone else, I'm going to turn now to my partner Chen Lin uh, to tell us about his latest recommendations to his subscribers. Welcome, Chen. Thank you, Jay. Really good to have you again. Chen, you recommended the purchase of Pan Orient Energy Corp. Trades in Toronto under the symbol POE, I believe. And And those of us in the U.S. who don't have accounts, uh, in Canada can buy it uh, under the symbol, over-the-counter, over the under the symbol P-O-E-F-F in the U.S. Uh, it was selling at, the last I checked, at Canadian $2.29 uh, today. What is it that you like about this stock, uh, Chen? After all, I think you had it previously in your newsletter, and it was not one of your better recommendations, but what do you see this time? What do you see about it that makes it so attractive? Oh,
5: I, 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 I stopped out at four dollar and change. Uh, they were having problem with their wells in Indonesia. At that time, I think that was two months ago, the market wasn't looking good. I figured i say I would sell it and then I'm looking to buy it back later. And mm-hmm. um, today they made an announcement. They have a, a pretty nice well, 1,000 barrel per day in Thailand. And uh, this is a new type of technique. You know, I talked to the management. They, they were not able to produce this high before. They was a 60 barrel in that area. In, in that area, so now they produce a thousand barrel. Well, they believe they have at least three locations. They can have a hopefully similar results. So their current production is looking up. Uh, the company trading at two dollar twenty nine, two dollar thirty uh, has about one dollar in cash. Uh, All <clears throat> their drilling program fully funded by the existing cash and um, cash flow. So, what
4: kind of cash flow do you anticipate, Chan? Are you saying there's a dollar on the balance sheet per yeah, share? They have,
5: they have a dollar cash on the day because they raised money early this year. Fortunately, mm-hmm. they raised dollar at six fifty.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: now it's about one third of. The wow, dollar.
4: interesting. So they have plenty of cash. They get, they got their drilling funded. Uh, and what are you thinking they can generate in terms of cash flow per share? Oh, this.
5: The, the cash flow itself, okay, uh, is, their production is very volatile, uh, they're having problem with Thailand, so it's very hard to estimate. But uh, what I'm looking at is, if they make a discovery, just in Indonesia, uh, uh, they make a discovery, you know, PetroChina China will buy it, because it's pretty obvious, they're, this, they're, they right next to PetroChina. China. Okay, and then Petro China just bought a Chinese oil firm, just bought another company this week, if I remember correctly. So, uh, you know, there's uh, plenty of interest out there. If they make a major discovery next to PetroChina field in Indonesia, it's a very, very easy, uh, takeover target. Mm-hmm. And besides that, they have a cash, cash and cash flow coming in. Um, they can potentially, uh, you know, per, support, well support the current price. Okay, that they basically, they, you get the drill in Indonesia complete for free and plus more. So I feel just one of those oil stocks that's, uh, uh, so depressed.
4: So what would be the, more or less the market cap of this stock? There's how many shares out, Chen? More or less?
5: Uh, 56 million, I believe. so oh, okay. About 100, 120 million. Think about 120 million. They have 60 million, uh, almost 60 million in cash.
4: Uh huh.
5: So, <laughs> and then they have all the, a prospect they, they accumulated for the past few years, including their, you know, Jeju on the crown, which is uh, the, uh, you know, the concession right next to Petrochina.
4: Yeah. So are all their operations then, did you say they're in Indonesia? Or in, uh, in, in Thailand. In Thailand, oh, Thailand right. Field okay. is in Thailand. Mm-hmm. They are shooting some giant
5: oil field in Indonesia. No, okay. Okay, they also have oil property in Canada. So they're like hmm. three, three areas. But the Canada, you know, oil sands like dormant, they 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 just, you know, they they're not throwing money on that at all. Just waiting for sale, waiting for some
4: other alternative. Somebody else might come out and and take them out, a bigger player there perhaps, or something like that.
5: Yeah, I I feel they are. You know, their Thailand operation is interesting. If they can get some traction, uh, that they provide very good cash flow to fund their operation. Really exciting is Indonesia. They have a a lot of concessions they got in the past uh, five. You know. Uh, five ten years, including two thousand and eight, which they where they got you know used the opportunity to get a pretty good decent concession mm-hmm. uh, so then they're you know it's drilling after all year, all these three years preparation they start finally start trading this a uh, very important concession
4: so is the Indonesian concession uh what has what provides the real big up up um you know the the real big uh, blue sky
5: yeah, that's that's the blue sky. And it's it's next you basically you can you just walk from Patriot China's concession to their concession. And uh-huh. the Pedro China concession is one of the largest for Patrick China.
4: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well um we're awaiting our next guest and uh, we do have her, I'm just told my engineer tells me that Kathy Fong is is with us. Uh, Chen, um just one minute. I see we got a minute before we go to break. You also, one of your favorites that you talk about and one that I have purchased, uh, personally I've purchased a lot of shares in, uh, is Mart, uh, Mart Energy. Um, what's the story there? Do you still like it as much as ever? Yeah, I, it's very interesting. I talked to Pan
5: and the CEO. I mean, they, they know Mart. They it said it's just, it's unbelievable the price level. <laughs> you know, we are, basically they're trading at less than one time next year's cash flow. You know, even Pine Orange, you know, the ADACs take over, $7 billion takeover over by the Chinese firm of a Nigeria oil field. And it, Lamar could reach that production level in in a year or two. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that that's basically all organic growth, uh, you know, strong cash flow, plus potentially to pay dividends.
4: Very interesting, Chen. Uh, Chen, I hope you can stick with us because I think you're going to be interested, or at least I'd like your opinion on uh, what our next guest, Kathy Fong, has to say about her company, uh, also involved in the energy sector uh, in Mongolia, uh, the uh, coal exploration uh, company there called uh, Lucky Strike. Uh, can you stick with us, Chen, as we go to break and come back on the other side of break? Sure. Great. Okay. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with you and Kathy Fong. Uh, from Lucky Strike. Don't go away.
2: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: www.rypatchgold.com. Legend Gold Corp. is a gold
2: exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chikamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www.
1: Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper gold rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi billion dollar deposits. With its six million dollar plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district.
2: Northwest Quebec is one of the world's friendliest and most prolific areas for mining and exploration. One of the rising stars in this incredible region is Visible Gold Mines. From the exciting Wasamac area to Jutel, Visible Gold Mines is drilling nonstop in pursuit of the next important gold discovery in Northwest Quebec. Visible Gold Mines has the focus, experience, commitment, and resources necessary to rapidly emerge as a leader in the vibrant Quebec gold sector. Check out VisibleGoldMines.com, VGD, on the TSX Venture. Exchange. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
6: Welcome to the human
1: race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard.
4: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me Kathy Fong. She is the president and CEO of Lucky Strike Resources. And Lucky Strike is a sponsor to this show, I'm happy to say. Uh, It is a company that is involved in Mongolia in building a business uh, that's based on coal, uh, coal mining exploration uh, as its foundation. I met Kathy uh, in the spring of this year at a conference in Switzerland and then enjoyed a lunch meeting with her and one of her directors in Toronto a few weeks back. Kathy is a civil and structural engineer with over 20 years of experience in mining, heavy industrial and and commercial construction. She is highly energetic, but she brings with her what I think is unusual, an unusual quality for an engineer. She is also a visionary. And in just a minute, I'm sure, she will tell us about her vision for her this very small microcap exploration company uh, doing business in Mongolia. Uh, let me just tell you that Lucky Strike um, trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol LKY, and you can buy it in the U.S. over-the-counter under the symbol LCKY. Um, there are 18.9 million shares of stock outstanding, well, 70 cents, so it gives it a really small market cap of $13-14 14 million dollars, something like that. The company does have, in spite of that small market cap, a total resource of all categories of something like a half a billion tons of coal and uh... i think we're going to hear from kathy that that's probably just the start in terms of the resource potential that her project in uh, mongolia have has welcome kathy to turning hard times into good times
7: jay thank you very much for having us come on to your program
4: really good to have you kathy you uh... have had some man- past managerial successes uh, most notably, I believe it was a Silvercorp Metals uh, operating in China. For those who may not be familiar with that company, can you just give our listeners a sense of, of how well that company did uh, when you were involved with it?
7: That company, we went from less than $10 million in market capitalization, and currently it's trading around $1.4 billion. At its high, it was a $3 billion market cap company. But in terms of mining projects, I've worked on projects like Saldivar, which was a 1.6 billion construction project in the 90s. I worked on SK Creek, which is the world's richest gold mine of its time. So it's about bringing projects to fruition. It isn't a one-time experience. It's having worked on world-class mining projects over the decades.
4: Yeah, and certainly being able to see the vision and and see all of the all of the issues that could make a project not work, or to be able to, to get, you know, to be able to isolate those projects that can that can be successful the longer run it certainly takes an, an awful lot of uh, an awful lot of, um, of 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 vision and an ability to see the complexity of projects because they're all uh, all very complex. Well, one of the most important issues for companies investing uh, in long terms overseas certainly is the uh, you know is the confidence in the government what can you tell us about mongolia
7: mongolia as it stands right now their number one industry is mining according to goldman sachs about two weeks ago when i was in new york their forecast is that eighteen percent gdp growth for mongolia for the next five years what we do know is that in mongolia this last twelve months their market index, their stock market index, went over a hundred percent, and it was the best return of all stock markets in the world.
4: Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the, in terms of doing business in Mongolia, you're obviously very comfortable doing it, or you wouldn't be there. Um, what about um, you, you, let's talk about your coal project? It's, I believe, called the CN Coal Project. Is, uh, is that
7: it? That that is correct, Jay.
4: And you have 272 million tons. Uh, But that's in the, um, I guess, that is in, what what categories are those in?
7: What we have is that we have 158.1 million tons in measure, 113.9 million tons in indicated, and 232 million tons in infer. The Mm -hmm. aggregate of our measure indicated and infer resources is 504 million tons or half a billion tons.
4: All right, is that enough uh, Is that enough of a resource to get you started moving towards a project? or are you going to be exploring and developing and, and enlarging that resource more?
7: That is a very significant amount of coal, and consequently, there is two focus. One of our focus is drilling to expand the resource as quickly as possible in this next 12 months. In tandem with that, we're going to work on a scoping-level study to be able to come up with solid business platforms to understand the different products and the different margins that we can actually harness from this deposit to make it a solid business case.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly uh, you have to think margins when you're talking about coal because coal, uh, you know, is a commodity, and very often a project is either feasible or not feasible depending on the transportation capabilities getting that coal to market, depending on what it's used. You're talking about I know when we talked in Toronto, you have a vision of different different businesses that can be built around this uh, this coal project. Could you talk about those uh, those visions at this time?
7: Jay, I look at it in terms of added value. One truck may be able to truck 100 tons of material. So the question is, how much can you sell that 100 ton of material for? Can you sell it for $60 or over $450 per ton? Mm-hmm. So we've been looking at different added value products. From this coal, using technology, we know that we can turn this coal into diesel, We know that there's a possibility that we can turn this coal into ammonia, urea, different chemicals, natural gas, and these are higher in products. By doing this, we have the appropriate margin. As an example, ammonia and urea is selling for more than $400 per ton. And these are the kind of upper-scale product lines that we're interested in for the CN coal project because the margin will protect the shareholders mm-hmm. of our company.
4: So, let me ask you, Kathy, then, uh, when you do your scoping work, uh, will you be looking at some of these other margin businesses, I guess?
7: That's right. So, as part of that, we're going to be taking samples to different laboratories and different plants to look at gasification, so that we can turn this product into diesel, turn it into the ammonia, the urea, the methanol, the ethanol, and the different products including natural gas and diesel, because it's by means of the added value is where the fatter margin is to make Lucky Strike a solid base business.
4: Okay. Uh, Chen, do you have a question for Kathy?
7: Yes, hi Cassie. Uh, so,
5: with all the different approach, do you have some, uh, you know, idea what kind of capex uh, we are talking about, and what do you, what plan do you have to, uh, uh, to get the funding?
7: Okay. To begin with, there's been a number of different groups who has already come to try to position themselves for funding for large capital projects. So if we were to do a simple case of wash plant and flotation, where the wash plant is to take out the ash and the flotation is to take out the sulfur, we're probably looking at a plant from China for a 5 million ton per year or 15,000 ton per day in the order of magnitude of fifty million dollar US for the plant itself. Now to build the infrastructure and then bring the plant into Mongolia and to build up the mine itself, we would have to do the engineering. It could be somewhere around a hundred million plus the fifty million. We don't know until we do the engineering study. So we're looking at perhaps a hundred and fifty million dollars if we were to do an upgrade of the coal and ship it to China. If we were to do other Added value products. As an example, if we were to look at methanol, if we were to spend around 250 million market um, capital capital expenditure, we could be looking at an annual revenue of about 130 million, perhaps, and perhaps an EBITDA of about 60 million. If we were to look at an ammonia plant, which is in the order of magnitude of about 300 million in capital expenditure, we would be looking at an annual revenue of roughly about 315 million and perhaps 155 million in terms of EBITDA. If we were to look at ethylene glycol, the capital expenditure for a project of this nature would be in the order of magnitude of 700 million dollars. For an annual revenue of approximately $440 million and an EBITDA uh, in the order of magnitude of $305 million. But the one that is closest to my heart and that makes a lot of sense for China is to produce synthetic natural gas. It would be a capital cost of $2.3 billion, with an annual revenue of $1.5 billion, with an EBITDA of 1.1 billion per annum. Because our deposit, as it stands with a half-billion ton of coal, we're looking at a potentially a very long mine life. Should it be that over the course of the 12 months, we're able to bring the resource growth from half a billion ton to closer to a billion ton, even if we were to expense 5 million ton per year of coal in production, That would equate to the order of magnitude of 200-year mine life. Therefore, this project is just at its infancy in terms of proving up the resource, carrying out a scoping-level engineering study to understand what added value products we can produce to form a solid base for the investors.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, Kathy, when I hear you talking about those big CapEx numbers, I'm looking at your market cap currently of maybe $14 million or 15000000 million, let's call it. Um, <clears throat> I guess you would be looking, I mean, obviously things are going to change if you can provide this vision and, and people can see the growth and the potential profits flowing from the project. But these are big numbers for a really small cap company, do you see possible project financing available? Do you see some financing that could possibly come out of China for some offtake uh, arrangements, or, or what do you what do you think might be possible?
7: We see a lots of possibility. There is a lot of different groups that is taking a look at us, and because the hard asset in the ground Jay, it doesn't go out of fashion. So, that is what's important to us. That the core asset of the company is firmly intact, and with that, we can actually bring a business case to fruition, and it's because of the risk-reward ratio, the fact that we are just starting out for a small investment, we could bring something to a sizable company. And for those who followed me in the last company, we were able to achieve exactly that how we can involve a small amount of capital and grow it a hundredfold. And this is the focus of Lucky Strike.
4: Well, certainly your track record uh, lends credence, uh, credibility, let's say, to your efforts here, Kathy. I think Chen has another question. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but Chen, uh, go ahead, fire off your question to Kathy.
5: Yeah, Kathy, uh, you're probably familiar with another company which I happen to own. is the prophecy Co. They're also in Mongolia. How do you compare with them? And then they seem to take approach of a general electricity
7: approach. That's right. To I look at it in terms of a business model, in terms of an engineering model. So I always have to look at the different products and say, where do I get my status margin? I'm going to give it to you by means. The price of electricity right now, in my mind, may not harness the necessary margin that I'm looking for. Therefore, I want to be able to carry out scoping study looking at multiple products and see which product will have the right offtake, will have the right margin, will have the right profile for the appropriate return to the investor. Because the generation of power at this junction may, at this very junction, may not have the kind of margin I'm looking for because the project is so significant in size and it could host a series of different products, including power generation, perhaps a later stage in its mine life where the margin would be fatter. That's what's important that we understand the deposit, we understand the engineering, and we understand the commercial business value that we can harness from such a deposit.
4: Unfortunately, Kathy, we're just about out of time. You certainly have a lot of different uh, business ideas there, and I guess they're all, Uh, you know, they all make a big difference in terms of which direction you go, how much capital you'll need. But this is certainly a very interesting story. Is there anything else you think our listeners should should know before we conclude our discussion for today?
7: How we think is we don't want to sell the McDonald's of coffee. We want to sell the Starbucks of coffee. They both sell coffee, but they sell (laughs) coffee at a different margin. So it's about what's in between the ears. Using technology, using a core asset, and bringing value to the shareholders.
4: Well, certainly, Kathy, with your engineering background and your vision, uh, which you've uh, translated into success in the past, uh, it really is a very, very interesting story. And I think with a market cap of $14, $15 million, whatever, with success, you're going to do it again. Uh, My concern always is... uh, the macroeconomic uh, picture, but obviously people have to heat their homes and, uh, you know, sort of a basic commodity is, uh, energy and, the, and the kind of things you're talking about. I want to thank you very much, uh, Kathy for sharing your story with us and we'll look forward to having you back on again sometime to update our listeners. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with our main guest today, Ian macavity uh, well-known, uh, market analyst who was, uh, a, a mainstay on Wall Street Week, uh, years ago and, uh, but still, Going Strong in Toronto, out of uh, Toronto, Ian McAvity will be with us right after the break. Don't go away.
2: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000 while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. www.rypatchgold.com.
2: Northwest Quebec is one
0: of the world's friendliest
2: and most prolific areas for mining and exploration. One of the rising stars in this incredible region is Visible Gold Mines. From the exciting Wasamac area to Jutel, Visible Gold Mines is drilling nonstop in pursuit of the next important gold discovery in Northwest Quebec. Visible Gold Mines has the focus, experience, commitment, and resources necessary to rapidly emerge as a leader in the vibrant Quebec gold sector. Check out VisibleGoldMines.com, VGD, on the TSX Venture Exchange. Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www www.legendgold.com Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business
1: Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down
3: Taylor at gmail.com. Now back to our program.
4: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again uh for a second or a third time uh Ian Macavitti. Uh he's been writing his deliberations on world markets newsletter uh for a global readership since nineteen seventy-two. He draws on forty-eight years of experience in the world of finance as a banker and broker since 1961 and as an independent advisor and entrepreneur since 1975 principally a technical analyst uh, mr mcavedi uh... has written on global intermarket relationships since the 1970s including original research on relationships between gold mining shares and gold bullion in 1983 uh... ian was a a founding director and advisor of the central fund of canada and in 2003 he was a founder uh, a founding trustee of the Central Gold Trust. <clears throat> Excuse me. In 2009, Ian became a founding trustee of the Silver Bullion Trust. That's SBT. Trades SBT is a symbol on Toronto Exchange. Uh, he has been uh, profiled by most of the major North American financial media, including the Wall Street Journal, Barrons, and the Financial Post. And um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, he uh, has been a special guest on Louis Rukeyser's Wall Street Week. Many years ago, I remember watching Ian and, <clears throat> and admiring his views at that time. Uh, he's also been on CTV, Canada's AM morning show, and CBS uh, Business World. Welcome, Ian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Yeah, thanks, Jay. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got battling a cold here. Well, you just uh, came back from a conference called the Contrary, in, or the Contrary Opinion Forum in New Hampshire, and you have some observations about the uh, the consensus of that group. What, what conference... Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that conference uh, and and sort of what was the feeling and the sense of the attendees there?
8: Well, the the Contrary Opinion Forum uh, basically is is an old conference. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of the original Mm -hmm. conference. Uh, And it's always been geared around the, the early writings of sort of going, I mean, try to identify the crowd mood and then go against it dating back to the writings of humphrey neal um, going all the way back to the nineteen thirties huh. uh... the you know the conference this year had a number of what i would call conventional money managers i tend to be sort of the 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 primary sort of gold bug uh, type who was there mm-hmm. and uh, the thing that struck me more than anything is the number of people that i've known for many years at this conference who quietly confided to me that uh, after watching the damage that was done to silver last spring, they couldn't stand the prosperity and they traded off a lot of their gold holdings. Mm. You know, and I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm sitting there hearing this from people that I've got a lot of respect for. they you know, mm-hmm. these, these are, are, are good investors, mm-hmm. you know, and both big and small type investors, and I'm sitting there thinking. Boy, I, I'm hearing this firsthand, and on the other hand, I'm reading newspaper articles that somehow, or other gold's supposed to be in a bubble.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
8: You know, I, I have never ever heard of a bubble in which people were talking about uh, getting out of the way of it. You know, <laughs> normally, they're asking, you know, where can I buy gold cheap, or what's the best gold stock, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. But I was really quite. I was quite surprised at uh, at, the, at the caution with which a lot of investors have taken towards the gold market.
4: Hmm. Well, certainly I can tell you from my perspective as a long-term gold bull uh, that I was getting a bit easy with the rapidity with, with which gold was rising. It was almost going, seemed to be heading towards a bubble status, and then what happened then was, uh, to me, very comforting to see a pullback along the lines that we saw. Would you feel the same way?
8: Oh, absolutely. The, you know, the run up to nineteen hundred. Uh, basically, we got ahead of ourselves. That's uh, you know, I would say ahead of ourselves on a short to intermediate term trend basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the gold run, the gold run in nineteen hundred, for example, was nowhere nearly as extreme as the silver rush that we had last spring, where silver got all the way up to fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, if you try to measure price relative to its 200 day moving average or some sort of a floating trend line like that, you know, silver got way, way ahead of itself last spring and, you know, traditional silver volatility came in
6: uh-huh. and,
8: you know, you went back from 50 to 30 very promptly. <laughs> uh, the gold rush, you know, we got, you know, up to 1900, came back down to 1600 and sort of have seemed to have stabilized. I, I keep throwing a, a question to audiences that, you know, if you bought a stock, you know, 10 years ago with $3 or $4 a share, and it's very methodically climbed up to $19 a share, do you hit the panic button if it comes back down to 16 and a half or 17 <laughs> or even $15.5, 16 yeah. yeah. And, you know, people shake their heads and say, of course not. But the minute you add two two zeros to it and explain it's the gold price, then they go all woozy because they get mystified by big numbers
4: mm-hmm.
8: you know it's been a remarkably orderly advance
4: mm-hmm. yeah and it certainly has been compared to a lot of other things and you mentioned in a recent newsletter that I was reading you talked a little bit about gold's advance being i think two and a half times where it was in nineteen eighty i think was the was the date you picked or I can't remember exactly the
8: yeah you Yeah, two yeah and at nineteen hundred dollars the gold price was two point two times the peak that it made back in January of nineteen eighty mm-hmm. and you know this I always throw this out to rebut the articles about gold being in a bubble
6: mm-hmm.
8: The point that I like to point that I like to make is total credit market debt in the United States is twelve times the level mm-hmm. it was in the first quarter of nineteen eighty mm you know, the Standard & Poor's 500 index is 11 times mm-hmm. its 1980 level.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: You know, if if people want to talk about bubbles, I think they probably should be looking more at the credit market uh, than at the gold market.
4: You yeah, know, I think you also mentioned GDP is uh, five or six times higher. Yeah,
8: GDP and um, uh, U.S. national debt are both 5.5 or 5.6 times mm-hmm. the level they were in 1980. Mm-hmm. Now, if anything, the gold price has lagged you know relative to its extreme of 1980 and if we were to replicate in this decade uh, what gold did in the 1971 to 1980 rush uh the slope of that rush would translate in today's dollar terms to something like $5500 on the gold price
4: mm-hmm. you know
8: then you could start talking
4: that maybe we're in a bubble right you know i've made the uh, i made the uh, the statement recently when i was on a bnn show i think it was michael Haynesworth was the uh, was the host, um, and I said something to him that was uh, something like, if I were to walk down the streets of New York and canvas people on the streets and ask them if they own gold as an investment, do they think it's a good idea, I'd be lucky to find 1% of the general populace feeling that way. And, of course, it would depend a little bit where you go, I suppose, but I'm, I'm thinking Fifth Avenue or, you know, some areas like that. And, uh, I mean, I really believe that that's the case. What's your sense in terms of the mood of, of you're, you're a Canadian, and maybe the Canadians are a little more inclined towards owning gold than Americans, but honestly, I think gold is still out of favor to a very, very great extent, and and even was, you know, at 1900, but what's your sense as to the, uh, you know, the view, or the, the vision, the view of most uh, Canadians or most people in general? So the,
8: public, the public participation in the gold market has not even started Mm-hmm. In this cycle it's it's really not on many people's radar screen, even as an investment type of vehicle you know I, again, because I was active in the nineteen seventies you know the the big public change of course is that we've everything has shifted over to a credit and paper kind of a basis, mm-hmm. so that you've got a generation now that don't really think of the lessons their grandfathers were trying to teach them years ago about you know. Having a few gold and silver coins tucked away in the closet, just in case.
6: Mm-hmm.
8: And but you know today's paper, you know paper society, uh, the bulk of the public doesn't even think of it yet. Uh, they will. There, there will be a point at which this, uh, the gold market and the degradation of the purchasing power of paper will bring them in.
6: Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, that hasn't even started yet. On the, the run to 1900, and you know the turbulence that we've started to see. I think was largely because the gold market and silver market finally attracted the momentum players from the hedge funds.
6: Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, you know, and the reason that we're getting the increasing volatility is a lot of these hedge fund traders are essentially momentum tra- mm-hmm. traders, and they're sitting there, you know, they're they're young guys that grew up playing Pac Man on a computer, and now they're playing the same sort of game but throwing around hundred million dollar chips instead. <laughs>
4: Yeah, there's plenty of chips to go around when you don't have to tie it to the gold supply, isn't there? So, uh, we're seeing this exponential rise in, in debt. I like to look at a chart, a chart that I use in many of my talks, Ian, shows total US dollar debt growing almost exponentially. And then there's a blue line that's GDP, and it's growing in a very, in a very, uh, in a very shallow, in a linear fashion. Mm -hmm. And that gap between Well, we've seen a bit of a rollover now since Lehman Brothers. We see the total U.S. dollar debt is no longer growing. It's actually curled over a minuscule amount. But what is going to happen? How is this thing going to be resolved? This is the big question that I wrestle with every day, virtually, is how does this thing get resolved? Anybody, I mean, any chance that we have a smooth, soft landing?
8: Uh, I would say a soft landing is, is almost impossible. At this point, because they, you know, we so over inflated the the process the you know when you talk of, you talk of debt the, there are two levels of debt that have to be looked at government debt dating back to the bailouts of two thousand and seven and QE one and QE two and all the other games that are being played by Bernanke and Geithner, the public debt is still rising. Private credit rolled over in two thousand and seven two thousand and eight. And the public is still uh, essentially not expanding their debt. They're contracting. They're not spending. And in essence, the government deficits uh, and the money printing is trying to fill that gap. But that credit creation isn't flowing down to Main Street. It's it's not getting into the economy. What they've done is they've essentially juiced the financial markets to essentially uh, reliquify the banks. And to me, the problem that we're up against now with the end of QE2 is you've essentially got deflationary forces coming in because the public is still reducing debt. Uh, they're essentially, uh, you know, building their savings. And even there, a lot of the so-called increase in savings is more the cancellation of, of mortgage debt that's being mm-hmm. written off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we basically have capped out. At the, at, the, at the worst point of the economic cycle, uh, you know, I think it was the third quarter of 2009, when, or somewhere around the third quarter of 2009 was the low point on sort of moving average of, of GDP-type numbers, they were expanding the credit market over the four-year window to that point at something in the order of $10 of new credit to add $1 to GDP. Yeah, and then it basically at that point, that's like putting your putting the accelerator down to the floor and suddenly finding your foot on the highway underneath. Yeah, they went right through the bottom of the car. And it's you know, they, I in my mind, there really hasn't been an economic recovery. There was an engineered recovery created by the deficit, but when you look at an awful lot of the data, uh, in essence, the U.S. economy peaked in 2007, 2008. And you know food stamps uh unemployment home housing prices, if you look at everything, there hasn't been a recovery since then, and now it looks like it's rolling over again for a, a fresh period of weakness coming in yeah well
4: it certainly does seem seem to be the case Ian what do you think um uh what what's the cause of it and does this look a lot like it looks a lot like what i read uh, have read about the great depression. The uh, the banks were pumped full of liquidity, uh, but the bankers weren't lending. I guess they were having a hard time finding creditworthy borrowers. The pushing on the string analogy. Do you think it's appropriate now?
8: Same oh, thing? I think that's exactly what's going on. <coughs> mm-hmm. uh, anyway, we're down, you know we're pushing on a wet noodle. <laughs> you know, it's even worse than just a piece of dry string. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if you look, if you if you look at for example, you know, home prices today. The Case-Shiller Home Price Index is now back to where it was in 2003. Mm-hmm. When that home price index first got to this level, there was $6.6 trillion worth of mortgage debt outstanding in the U.S. Today, the same home price level, there's $9.9 trillion wow. of mortgage debt outstanding. Wow. Now, that $3.3 trillion is somewhere in the financial system on some institution's books as an asset.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: Is it an asset? Has it been mm-hmm. written off? Has it been dealt with? No.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: You no, know, and it's just, it, it's, it, they're stifling. You know, the system is being stifled.
4: Yeah. Well, it's, it seems to me, Ian, from what I read, that policies are very much akin to what they were in the 1930s, only more so. Uh, very, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, the f- one
8: chart that I showed to an audience, ever showed to the Country Opinion Forum audience, I, I sort of joked that everybody always wants to see a chart that goes from the lower left to the upper right. Uh, so I put up, sort of in a black humor way, a chart of uh, the recipients of food stamps. Uh-huh. You know, that, in 2007, you had 26 million people getting food stamps. You now have 43 million people. So there, mm-hmm. there's a growth industry for you. Yeah. And their monthly benefit has gone from 94 dollars a month to 134 dollars a month.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: You know, you're not getting any real economic contribution from that at all.
6: Yeah.
8: And the the result is you've got this you know, effectively a, a depression-like atmosphere. And it's from this that you know the ultimate resolution will be some sort of an attempt to try and hyperinflate their way out of it. Mm -hmm. Whether they can or not, I don't know. But that's where it comes back to holding gold as essentially a
4: defense
8: position Mm -hmm. against the degradation of the
4: paper that they're going to be issuing. Well, it's very interesting to note that, uh, I believe you would agree with this. You, uh, correct me if you, if you disagree, but that the best bull markets for the mining shares have come during these credit deleveraging, major credit deleveraging of the senior currency. The 1930s, of course, was an outstanding time frame for the gold mining sector. I like to look at the, the what an ounce of gold will buy in terms of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, and we saw it rise dramatically from about an ounce of gold would have bought about 17% in July of 2008. It went to 44% by March of 2009. <clears throat> it came back a bit to 30%, but more recently with the Greek crisis and all the problems in Europe, it went up to 48%. So at the same time, Ian, I'm seeing gold mining profits rise very dramatically at this point in time. Uh, so, you know, whereas most people think of gold as an inflation hedge, I'm thinking gold as a hedge against uh, the, the carnage that comes with deflation.
8: Well, again, it's, uh, gold basically will fall less in a deflation and rise more mm-hmm. in an inflation. That's where that's where it really becomes sort of a wealth <coughs> preservation tool. Yeah, the in terms of the major gold mining stocks, uh, the larger companies. I think they basically shot themselves in the foot back in 2004 with the sponsorship of GLD. Yeah. Because the creation of GLD and the other ETFs, you know, we were the forerunners in, cre- in trying to create a stock exchange uh, tradable bullion proxy back in 1983 uh, when we converted CEF to holding nothing but physical gold and silver. Mm-hmm. But the industry got behind the launch of GLD, and in essence, they built up to over 70 billion dollars of essentially paper gold that is money that might have traditionally flown into the mining shares. And the, the result is the mining shares have really been underperforming the metal price, you know, partly because of the competing paper from the various uh, bullion ETFs, but also because as the industry consolidated, they got larger and larger, and to replace their reserves as they got to bigger sizes, they started making increasing what I would call premium price takeovers, allegedly to grow the company, but in point of fact, they were diluting their old shareholders to replace the reserves that they'd already mined out. Mm-hmm. And as a result, yeah, the, miners, uh, the major mining shares haven't served their big shareholders all that well over a period of time. They've diluted them down persistently. And the other, the other element as well, that big oil price spike a couple of years demonst- a couple of years ago demonstrated that they really have very little control over their operating costs as
4: well. well. Well, Ian, you mentioned, uh, the paper game, the paper gold. Uh, to what extent do you believe that's the case and the ETFs, uh, to what extent do you think the ETFs, uh, are actually backed by physical gold? Oh, I think that they are. Uh, I, I, I know all the
8: theories, uh, or I hear all the theories about it. But the one of the points that I often make, and, you know, HSBC is probably the biggest, you know, the biggest bank in the world. They're probably involved in something in the order of two hundred trillion dollars worth of derivative type stuff.
6: Mm-hmm.
8: You know, GLD is a seventy billion dollar fund. Mm -hmm. if you're doing business in the trillions, are you going to jeopardize your franchise for an odd lot in the billions?
4: Right, right. It just
8: doesn't make sense.
4: Well, I do know that GLD, for example, is a very liquid asset. It's If you want to trade, it's certainly a a way to get in and out of gold. If you want to speculate a little bit on the direction of gold in the short run, it it certainly does provide a great deal of liquidity. On the other hand, uh, your CEF has been around for a long time uh, and, you know, have a lot of confidence in knowing, uh, that, uh, that it's there. So it's, uh, you know, if there's any question in your mind, I guess, uh, if you sleep better at night, that's one reason to own CEF. As no, exactly. Well,
8: CEF <clears throat> and GTU, uh, basically the bullion is held in Canadian entities and, and is independently audited within Canada <clears throat> so that it's outside of the mainstream establishment system. You know, that's, uh, you know, it, basically it was designed to be the best form of what I would call paper gold holdings. Mm-hmm. It's still paper gold in that sense, as opposed to having it in your own hand. But, you know, we created this back in 1983, but the, the major ETFs are, if you read their perspectives, they basically, they are price trackers. -hmm. You know they are trading instruments. They're Mm -hmm. they're not long-term holding instruments. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, the thing that's been interesting. One of the things that's been interesting to watch to me is GLD. You know they have a an expense ratio that's that's fixed at 40 basis points per annum. The second largest one is IAU and i a u in June of 2010 cut their expense ratio from 40 basis points to 25 basis points. Mm -hmm. And in the subsequent 15 months, you know, GLD's holdings are down by about 80 tons, mm-hmm. and IAU's holdings are up about 80 tons. Huh. And it's sort of amusing to me that, you know, GLD's still by far the biggest, but it's always amusing to me when I'll hear a bear point to the fact that GLD's holdings are shrinking and, well, they, and they don't bother to observe the fact that IEU picked up just about exactly the same number of tens that GLD lost.
4: Well, that's very interesting. Ian, we've got to go to a commercial break now. When we come back, I want to, we talked about gold. I want to probably some more questions about gold, but also I want to get your take on the, on the general equity markets, the bond markets, maybe the mm-hmm. commodity markets if we have time. So we're gonna to go to break now and we're gonna be right back with Ian with Ian, excuse me, not Ian Gordon, Ian McAvitty. Ian Gordon's a good friend of mine and I have Ian Gordon on the mind because I want to ask you some questions about some of Ian's, uh, Gordon's theories, uh, as well as John Extra and some other people on the deflation side. So folks don't go away, we're gonna be right back with Ian McAvitty.
2: Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www www.legendgold.com
0: Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policy makers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000. While the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.
2: Northwest Quebec is one of the world's friendliest and most prolific areas for mining and exploration. One of the rising stars in this incredible region is Visible Gold Mines. From the exciting Wassamak area to Jutel, Visible Gold Mines is drilling non-stop in pursuit of the next important gold discovery in Northwest Quebec. Visible Gold Mines has the focus, experience, commitment, and resources necessary to rapidly emerge as a leader in the vibrant Quebec gold sector. Check out VisibleGoldMines.com VGD on the TSX Venture exchange.
1: Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper gold rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi billion dollar deposits. With its six million dollar plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district.
2: business community's first choice in internet talk radio.